two things that I do want to mention to you before we open the word together, and that is September, home group season is back in full swing. So a lot of the home groups are getting back to full schedules for this month of September. Um, we stress home groups as part of life here at Grace, we believe. Obviously, Sunday mornings and the corporate gathering are of vital importance, and then second only to that is home groups. And so we want to encourage you. There is a link on the website to our home groups that will show you all the different groups, roughly where they meet, when they meet. Um, if you're not involved in a home group, if I can encourage you to do that. The sermon notes that hopefully you have a copy of that you'll follow along this morning are questions on the back. And um, primarily, that's one of the things that we do in home groups is we walk through sort of applying the sermon together, helping one another to grow in applying the Word of God. And so if I could encourage you that way. And then the last thing I'll say before we start is the Scripture Journal. I think there's still some out there. Um, these are um, for First and Second Thessalonians. We did First Thessalonians a while back, but Second Thessalonians, they, they have the, the text of, of the book of the ESV version of Second Thessalonians and then blank spaces on the other side for you to take notes, both for your own time of devotional study and also if you want to use them for sermon notes, but they're available out front um, for a small donation that's less than you'll get it for on Amazon. So it's a deal. Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2. Let me just read these to you. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Coming of Jesus Christ is the most pivotal moment in all of Earth's history when God the Son left heaven and became fully God and fully man, took on flesh at the incarnation and dwelt among men and gave his life on the cross and then rose from the dead. When that took place, the earth and its inhabitants entered what the Bible refers to as the last days. It was as if history on this earth at the coming of Jesus Christ turned a page to what would be the final chapter for history as we know it on this earth. There's still all of eternity before us, and the last days chapter in the span of all of that will be just a small blip over the scope of eternity, but it is where we are today. We are in the last days. The Creator's plan has been, is to um, have a people that He has created in His image, a people who are um, made for His glory, that He has then chosen and called and saved and brought into Himself, to His kingdom, to worship Him and, and to gather in His presence and enjoy Him forever. And that can only happen through the coming of Jesus Christ through the, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ brought about the last days. It brings about what is the fullness of God's plan of redemption. And during these last days, it is a time when God is patiently, mercifully saving sinners. He is rescuing Sinners like you and I from our own disobedience and rebellion, people who hate him, ignore him, who break his law, he is patiently rescuing them from his holy judgment on account of the agony that his son suffered on the cross in our place. And so we are in those last days. Those who are trusting in Jesus Christ are testimonies of God's grace and patience with us to bring us to himself the work of redemption 
was finished by Jesus Christ 2,000 years ago. How long this season of last days goes on, we don't know, but there is nothing left that needs to happen except for the return of Jesus Christ. He will come for his bride, for his people, to claim them for himself, and he will also bring with him judgment, pronouncing judgment on all of the rest. The culmination of the last days, that, that day of the coming of Christ and the day of judgment, is often referred to in Scripture as the day of the Lord. When the apostle Peter preached the church's first sermon, as recorded for us in Acts chapter 2, he quotes frequently from Joel, from the Old Testament prophet Joel, but he alludes to both um, the, the last days and the day of the Lord. He speaks of both in the course of that sermon. Peter first described the phenomena of the coming of the Spirit upon God's people and the ability that they now had to hear the gospel in their own language, to hear and to understand God's word. And Peter describes that ability to hear the gospel as, and, and to know it and believe it as a sign of the coming of the last days, that pouring out of the Spirit inaugurates the last days, God's Spirit coming upon his people. But then Peter goes on to say that those last days, that period of time of God working in mighty ways to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth, will ultimately culminate in the day of the Lord, a day that Acts 2.20 describes as a day when the sun is turned to darkness and the moon to blood. In that day of the Lord, Jesus comes to rescue his people, to take them to be with himself, and then to pronounce judgment, his righteous judgment. At the day of the Lord, there will be no escaping the wrath of God for those who are not trusting in Jesus Christ. I've said all that because the last days and the day of the Lord are two of the consistent themes that sort of tie together the two books that we're going to study this fall, 2 Thessalonians and 2 Peter. We've done the firsts of those in the past, uh, and this is not just taking two seconds and sort of piecing them together. We, we feel like there is a consistent theme that ties 2 Thessalonians and 2 Peter together. And that's why you've seen that this sermon series is called Living in the Last Days, Waiting for Jesus. Some of the instances in which you see last days and day of the Lord. Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul is describing the return of the Lord, Jesus being revealed from heaven. And in verse 10, he says, When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. He goes on into chapter 2 and he continues to return about, to, to speak about the return of Jesus Christ, his second coming. And he writes in Chapter 2, verse 1, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. He's describing this reality that we're in the last days awaiting for the return of Jesus Christ and the day of the Lord. In 2 Peter, chapter 3, the apostle Peter speaks of false teachers who are denying the return of Jesus Christ. They are mocking those who believe in a second coming of Jesus and saying, where is your Jesus? We haven't seen him. He doesn't seem to be returning. And so Peter responds, 2 Peter 3 verse 9 says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar 
and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Peter gives you the, the, the understanding there of first the, the, the last days, the period in which God is patient, desiring that all would come to repentance, but also the finale of that being the day of the Lord. And that day of the Lord plays a pivotal part of both 2 Thessalonians and 2 Peter. Paul and Peter want God's people to know that Jesus will return. And the emphasis in teaching on this is not so that we could enter into debates with other Christians about the exact sequence and order of events of the last time so we can kind of nail it all down. He speaks to that, both Paul and Peter speak to it, their purpose is how we should live while we wait for Jesus to come. The emphasis is, is waiting but living differently in light of the return of Jesus. How should God's people live in light of his coming? There is a conviction that's shared by the apostles that they learned from Jesus himself, and that is that the truth of Jesus' return means we cannot approach life as God's people as sort of business as usual. We cannot simply go through our day and, and act like his return is just something that's way out there and, and doesn't matter. It's something we are called in the New Testament to think about again and again because there is an urgency to the last days. We're not to live as if the here and now, this moment, is what it's all about. And this is what matters most. And, and everything is caught up in, in this moment. Because as believers in Jesus Christ, we understand that we are in the last days and the day of the Lord is coming. And there is eternity that lies ahead. And God is being patient during this time, but there should be urgency in our minds for those who need to hear the gospel. The, the return of Christ, the knowledge of that should shape our priorities and our goals and our desires. And Jesus in Matthew 24 is warning about the last days. And in Matthew 24, verse nine, he says, then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. Then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Jesus, then echoed by his apostles, repeatedly warned that the last days will be difficult for those who follow Jesus. It is a, a, a consistent theme that we who are following him can expect affliction. And he says that right at the beginning when he describes the tribulation that, that many will experience. But he also gives that in light of the fact that this is not all there is, that there is coming a, a day when he will gather his people to himself from all the ends of the earth. And King Jesus will say to them, Matthew 25, verse 34, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's the glorious hope of we who are trusting in Jesus Christ. But for the world, living through the last days may or may not be difficult. May or may not include measures of pain and difficulty and sadness, but in fact, the reality is for most of the, the world living during the last days, man revels in himself. 
Man revels in his accomplishments. Man pursues the, the pleasures that he most desires. He is convinced, man is, that he is making for a better world, that, that, that he is bringing about a, a better, happier, more enjoyable place, and that his wisdom is triumphing in a glorious way, that humanity is brilliant and does great things and continues to bring the world to a better place. The day of the Lord will shatter that illusion completely. Because it is on that day when what we have believed that Jesus Christ is the sovereign king alone, he will show himself to be who he is to all the world and all will see and know him. And on that day, there will be judgment. In fact, Matthew 25, 41 says he will say to the rest of the world, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's why there is such urgency about the last days and why we who are trusting in Jesus Christ should not live without thinking about Jesus's return. Instead, we ought to be pondering the words of 2 Peter. I read to you the words before about how this all comes to an end at the day of the Lord. And then he says this in 2 Peter 3.11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? That's the question. How should we live in light of what we know and what we believe about the return of Jesus, that our king is coming to gather his people and to judge the world, that it will be his day, how should we be living now? What kind of people are we to be? And so this morning, we're gonna start to answer that question from 2 Thessalonians, and we will see today Paul thanking God for his work in the lives of the Thessalonians, and as he does so, what we're gonna see is that our faith in God our love for one another, and our endurance in the midst of trials, suffering, all should be flourishing while we are living in the last days. Our faith in God, our love for others, and our endurance under trials should be flourishing in these last days. Let me start first couple of verses just to sort of set the context. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We studied 1 Thessalonians back in 2018. So it's been, uh, it's been a bit. So I'm gonna give you a little bit of background. Some of you who've been around here a long time are saying, oh, here he goes with the history. This is what he loves. I'm going to give you a reason why this matters, why understanding some of this about the church at Thessalonica is really significant to the understanding the next few verses. Both First and Second Thessalonians start with Paul, Silas, and Timothy, so the, the, the group sending the letter. And what's interesting about that is it tells us that the two letters were probably written pretty close in time. The fact that you have three who so often were separated and traveling and ministering in other places who are together for this period of time tells us that First and Second Thessalonians were probably written pretty close to one another. Our understanding of the history of the church at Thessalonica really comes from the book of Acts chapter 16 and 17. You have this map in your sermon notes as well, probably small enough 
print that it's just as hard to see the names as it might be on the screen for you now, but uh, Jerusalem is in the lower right, Thessalonica is in the upper left, northwest corner of the Aegean Sea. Thessalonica is an important city, capital city of that region of Macedonia, port city, so it's significant in terms of trade and travel. Also, it's on a, a road that's about 700 miles long that the Romans built that goes from east to west. So there's major trade, troop movement, and travel that goes through Thessalonica. So it is a significant city in the course of the Roman Empire. Acts 16.6 tells us that Paul and Silas were ministering in Galatia. You see around the top center there of, of the map. They are ministering there and wanting to move further to the west. We know Paul's ambition is to ultimately take the gospel as far as Spain. He's wanting to go west. He is stopped by the Holy Spirit from preaching in the next region over of Asia. He's not forbidden from entering the land, but at in some way, the Holy Spirit has communicated to him that there will not be ministry, the kind of ministry he's been doing going on in Asia. And so he travels up to Troas, which would be on that map, you see Pergamum just above Asia, just northwest of that on the coast. And it is there in Acts 16, 9 that we read this. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision... Immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Luke's record of that vision, what we would often know as the Macedonian call, led to the birth of the church at Thessalonica. Um, Paul begins to travel northwest from there, from Troas. He's going into land that is more Gentile, more idolatrous, probably more sort of pagan immorality as, as they travel, uh, land where more and more opposition is going to be faced. So in fact, they travel to Philippi. You remember the story in, in Philippi that Paul and Silas are arrested and they are jailed and they are singing in prison at night when the earthquake comes and God sets them free. And so they leave Philippi and they travel down to Thessalonica, about a hundred mile journey to get down to the Thessalonians where there is no church. This is the planting of the church. Acts 17.1 says they get there, there is a synagogue there, so there's a Jewish population, and, and we see throughout Acts, Paul will frequently start there. He'll go to that, that population that has some semblance of knowledge of the God that he's speaking about. So Acts 17 verse two says, Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Some were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. This is the birth of the, the church at Thessalonica. So the, the synagogue becomes the starting point because the idea there is that there are people who know when Paul speaks of the coming of Christ, an anointed one from God, that, that these are people who understand that. They have some expectation of a Messiah. Now what he's teaching is it's necessary for the Messiah to suffer and die. That's the part that they've had difficulty in comprehending. And so he comes and he begins to preach that this chosen one is Jesus, and he preaches in that synagogue, it says, for three Sabbaths. And then what happens, it seems, over time, 
is that the preaching seems to extend beyond that, and there are conversions of a great many, as it says they're devout Greeks, it's Gentiles, it's non-Jews. And it is, seems to be the conversion of the Gentiles that begins to enrage the Jews. Not only are they um, opposed to perhaps to what Paul's preaching, but they are now seeing this Gentile movement, and they are turning against him. Paul's probably in Thessalonica for more than just three weeks. We, we have a tendency in our chronological sort of Western thinking to see three Sabbaths, Sabbaths, three weeks. But Philippians tells us that he was there for longer because he, when he wrote to the Philippians, he said, thank you for sending gifts down when I was in Thessalonica. Philippians 4.16 speaks of more than one gift. And in 1 Thessalonians 2, he also talked about working with his hands night and day while he was in Thessalonica. So the, the point being, Yes, he, he was able to preach for three Sabbaths in the synagogue, but there was a longer stay, and it's during the course of that stay that more are coming to faith, and at the same time, opposition is growing. However long Paul's stay, it ultimately ends with this hostile crowd of Jews who seem to sort of hire a mob to go with them, and they go to the home where Paul and Silas are staying, and they, they want Paul and Silas dragged out. This is the beginning of the church, and so Paul and Silas are helped by some of the new believers there in Thessalonica to escape by night, and they flee and they go on to Berea. It's important that we know this. It's important that we understand that this church that, that was born in an environment of opposition and hatred. These people came to faith in Christ and immediately saw the suffering of the one who had preached to them. No sooner was the church in Thessalonica born than there was persecution. The fact that Paul has to flee is not a, not a good sign if you're an early believer. Uh, that, totally contrary to the, the message of those who would proclaim prosperity messages today and say, come to Jesus and all will be well and all will be blessed and all will be fine. Here you are with the one who has come to you and proclaimed this message of good news of Jesus Christ and you have put your trust in it and he is forced to flee for his life because of persecution. So that tells you a little bit about what you might expect as one who's going to follow after Jesus. For Paul, this is being ripped away from this newborn church. There's this sense of concern because not only has he now been chased, he now knows that the believers that have professed faith have been left behind and they have to live there and this is their neighbors and they are going to face opposition. And so he and Silas meet up with Timothy in Athens and it is there that Paul says to Timothy, would you please go back to Thessalonica? Timothy had not been there before, so maybe you can go in and, and they won't know you right away. And I need to know that the church is still standing. I need to know that the believers are, are there. And I need to know what's happening there. And so he sends him on. Paul and Silas go to Corinth. And that's where they meet back up with Timothy. And he returns from Thessalonica. That's 1 Thessalonians is born out of that. Timothy comes back with this, this amazing report that not only is the church there, but they are growing, they are thriving. They're not, they're not simply present, but they are actually growing in the grace of God. And so 1 Thessalonians gives just a little bit of a sense of Paul's just sort of shepherding relief. He is just praising God that, that the, the brethren that he has been instrumental in leading to Christ are now standing firm. But then he's also in 1 Thessalonians beginning to address some of the end times issues because the, the questions that are coming back from Timothy are, 
we've been saved and you told us Jesus is coming and that we're gonna be rescued and we're not being rescued? Have we been left behind in some way? Have we been forgotten? Has Jesus returned and, and, and we haven't gone with him? What, what's going on? So 1 Thessalonians begins to address some of that. And 2 Thessalonians continues then to clarify, to crystallize some of his answers concerning the return of Christ. This morning, I, I just want to, for the rest of our time, focus on verses 3 and 4. And this is where we're going to see that our faith in God, our love for one another, and our endurance in trials should be flourishing while we are living in these last days. This is a section of thanksgiving. He's given us the greeting, Paul and Silas, Timothy, the church of Thessalonica. Now he moves to this thanksgiving. We're gonna be on three and four, but I don't, I'm gonna read verses three through 10 because this really is a, a unit, this whole section, and, and, and it gives you an understanding of him giving thanks. So 2 Thessalonians 1 verse three. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and then the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. One of the themes that you should see recurring in there is that message about suffering. He says it at the beginning, all your persecutions and the afflictions that you're enduring. Then he speaks of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. And then he says, God will repay those who are afflicting you and grant relief to you. And so suffering becomes this consistent theme. It's 1 Thessalonians, it's in 2 Thessalonians. It's in 1 Peter, it's in 2 Peter. Just a, a few references to, to just refresh us on this, on how much Scripture speaks about the reality of our suffering. From 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 3, we sent Timothy, our brother, God's co-worker in the gospel, to establish and exhort you in the faith that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for these. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it came to pass and just as you know. 1 Thessalonians repeatedly saying, this is, this is what we told you, don't be surprised by this. 1 Peter 2, just to show you it again in Peter's epistles. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For this you've been called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Again saying, expect to suffer. 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon to test you as though something strange were happening, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Over and over again, 
The apostles want believers to know that injustice and suffering sadly should not surprise followers of Jesus. In fact, he's even saying that in our suffering, it is God giving us the opportunity to, on a very small scale, imitate the man of sorrows, to imitate our Savior who endured suffering on our behalf. And so we are, we are walking after his example. And just as Christ's suffering was not pointless, did not just end with death, Christ's suffering provides the, the greatest possible outcome. It redeems sinners. It provides for a glorious salvation. So to our suffering, Scripture continues to emphasize, is ultimately leading to a day when death will be no more. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain. The unbelieving world may be desperate to create its utopia here on earth, but the promise to believers is that life on earth may be difficult in these last days, but there is coming a day when we will be brought into an eternal and heavenly kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's our hope. It's in what's to come. So Paul's prayer then in verse 3 begins first with thanksgiving that their faith in God was growing abundantly. The, word, the, the phrase growing abundantly is one word in the Greek, hooper oxano. Oxano is a common Greek New Testament word in that it means increase, grow. It's used of plants, used of examples, parables of trees, of spiritual life. It, it will grow and it will increase. But hooper is, this is the only time in the New Testament where that prefix, H-U-P-E-R, is put on the front of it. We get our hyper from that. And so when you think of hyper, if we think of the hyperactive child, uh, he's not just active, he is very, very active. He sometimes seems overly active. Seems like it's always a he when we use those sorts of illustrations, for better or for worse. When we think of a situation that's hypercharged, uh, it's one that's consequential. It's, it's, it's full of emotion. It, it, it's just a situation that's just seeming like it's about ready to boil over. And so the ESV has used growing abundantly. The, the CSB version says flourishing. Your faith is flourishing. That's the word that I've used here because I, I think it's a picture to us. Paul is giving thanks that their faith in God has not just stayed stagnant, they put their trust in him and they know what they believed and it's just been there. But their faith is just growing. It's like that, 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 that summer when your garden had just the right soil and just the right sun and just the right rain and everything just keeps growing and, 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 and you're just enjoying the flourishing of that garden. That's the kind of language that Paul's using here when he's talking about their faith in God. It is flourishing. Now, Think about this, when things go wrong for you, when you are suffering, maybe you're a victim of injustice, how is your faith in God tempted? In what ways is your, your trust in God tempted? Are you tempted to wonder where he is in, in what you're experiencing? What he could possibly be doing in this? Are, are you tempted to question whether he's good in these kinds of circumstances? Whether even does the thought cross your mind that is God being cruel in this? 
it, 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 do you in some of these circumstances question, can, can God actually make good come out of these circumstances? The old Romans 8, 28, you know, can, can God really make good out of this? Is God even involved in my circumstances? The Thessalonians are being persecuted, presumably by neighbors, people that, that they, they probably knew. Prior to the coming of Paul and the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they've no doubt had good days and bad days, and days when they've been treated well and treated poorly, but now they are being targeted for hurt for pain simply because they are trusting in Jesus Christ. They are being targeted economically in ways that business is being taken. They are being targeted physically in ways that they are, are suffering affliction simply for trusting in Jesus Christ. And on, on top of it, there's no, there's no indication that this is temporary, that this is just a a quick thing and it'll be done. Here they had put their hope in Jesus Christ and now the suffering seems as bad or worse than ever. And yet, Scripture says their faith was flourishing. They were trusting in their Creator and Savior more and more. They were more convinced as they endured suffering that God was with them. As the persecution increased, so too did their belief that God is good and loving and their dependence on him. That, that is, as Paul is saying here, that is an answer to prayer because they are, even in the midst of it, are able to see this as part of God's wise plan. That's a flourishing faith that says, I, I, I don't just trust in him for my salvation, but I'm actually trusting him now that he is accomplishing his purposes in and through me. And, and what Paul does essentially is he shovels coal into the flames of their faith and he's just trying to give them more. And that's why the, the verses that we're gonna study in, in next week that go on in this passage, he's talking about God is bringing you relief and there will be justice for those who have brought harm to you. And, and, and part of God's justice here is what should encourage you in your faith to trust him. And so Paul's just fanning these flames and saying that your, your suffering is just growing you more and more in the image of Christ and preparing you to, to enjoy him all the more. God is at work in these things. He, he may or may not remove or change the, the afflictions, the hurts that we are experiencing today. He may not change them in the way that we want, but our trust in him and his eternal purposes should not stand still the picture here is that they should continue to grow because we, we believe that he is at work in these, that we can flourish in our faith in God in these things. Next thing he gives thanks for then is that the love of every one for one another is increasing. All of these are answers to prayers that he's recited either in other, other epistles, but also in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians 3, he said, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all. And now he's saying, Thank you, God, that their love is increasing for one another. The idea of increase or an abound when he says that in the prayer is that may you have love that is more than enough, that is just overflowing for one another. And here in his thanksgiving, Paul is thanking God for how that 
prayer is being answered. They are actively showing love to one another in the middle of their afflictions. We know that biblical love is active and it is sacrificial. It is more than just words, it is in deeds, and it is giving of oneself and serving. And so the Thessalonians Paul's describing here have found ways to serve each other and sacrifice for one another, even as they are going through such hardship. The love of God has become manifest through them and is now flowing through them. All right, so think about application of this again. When things go wrong, when you're suffering, when you're maybe suffering injustice, how is your love for others tempted? How is that loving others, serving others, how is that tempted when you are in the middle of suffering? Maybe it's anger. You're angry at your circumstances. You're angry at the affliction you're going through. And who tends to experience that? It's people right around us. And that, that, that anger then becomes something that, that lashes out at other people. Do you tell yourself that I'm, I'm suffering now, so loving and serving others takes a backseat. I, I can't be focused on other people right now. I'm, I'm going through affliction. Or are you, are you keeping score? I'm going through affliction, and how are people caring for me? What are they doing for me? How are they serving me? All, all areas where we can be in the midst of affliction tempted when it comes to loving others, because loving others is not easy. Even on our good days, sometimes we struggle to actively sacrifice for others, much less on the really hard days when affliction has broken down the door of our lives and is there, and the last thing we can think about is what's beyond that door at that point, and, and think about the people that, that we still are given opportunities to serve. Yet Paul thanks God for their love for others because it is flourishing. There's still a God-given gracious capacity to look past their own circumstances and to see that others are in need and there are others to serve. And so while we are living in the last days, we need to pray, brothers and sisters, for God to cultivate that sort of spirit in us, that we would love others even as we are dealing with affliction. Verse four, it says, therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Catch that last phrase, in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring, present tense. This is not past history. This is not, yay, you did this and you passed the test and it's all good. This is you are continuing to endure persecutions and afflictions. They've not escaped it. They're still suffering. But verse four says that the believers in Thessalonica, what, what Paul is particularly thankful for here is they have not been knocked down by these afflictions. The idea of steadfast in the Greek is to bear up under the weight. It is to be beneath the load of some kind of pressure and to continue to endure, continue to, to stand in place even when the weight of pressure is increasing. You can probably mentally feel that even as I describe it because you've been in circumstances just like that where, where you felt the, the weight of some circumstance that's just seemed overwhelming. And steadfastness is being able to endure by God's grace to not run 
for the exits at that point, to not look for the, the fast and easy escape from it. It is to, to trust that God is at work and that God has, at this point, put me beneath that weight. God is sovereign over whatever that weight of pressure is, and, and only God can give me the grace and strength to be steadfast, to endure beneath that. When Paul boasts here, he speaks of their steadfastness and faith. And you say, well, okay, we have just saw faith. We know what that is back in verse 3. But I think when he couples it with steadfast here in verse 4, it's really the idea of faithfulness. In other words, yes, you have faith in God, and that's what gives you hope. But verse 4 is talking about conduct under pressure, that, that the steadfastness and this kind of faith is faithfulness. It is, it is what's seen in your life as you are under the affliction. It is people still seeing you worshiping God and, and still seeking to honor and glorify God. It is continuing to live a godly life even under the weight of testing. It's a picture of fortitude, but not in the man-centered sort of way. Just get strong and be tough and, and tough it out. It is a fortitude that comes from God's strength in us, enabling us to bear up so that we now, even in affliction, still live Christ-like lives. So when things go wrong, when, when you're suffering, when maybe you're a victim of injustice, how is your steadfastness, your faithfulness tempted while suffering? Are you inclined toward impatience? I want to fix this. I want, it, I want it now. I want it to end now. I want it stopped with or without God's help. I just want out of this. I just want this over. Um, are you um, one who struggles with the idea that, that, that the, the ends justify the means? So even if I'm, my conduct isn't faithful, even if I'm not being very Christ-like, I'm going I'm to fight this thing and I'm, I'm going to win. I'm going to get through this thing and, and I'm going to be strong. Or do you approach affliction a little in the model of Job's wife, the curse God and die approach? The approach that says, God, this isn't right. I have tried to be faithful to you, and now I'm in these circumstances. This does not seem fair. This is not, why should I obey you and live with godly conduct if this is what it gets me? That's sort of the Job's wife model. Fact is, if you are trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior, you are following a sinless Messiah who was brutally put to death by the Roman government, who had no sin, no deceit in his mouth, but our sin is put on him and he is put to death. And so how can we expect to not suffer we're following him. That's why the New Testament repeatedly speaks to us about, about the last days. It is to bolster our faith and to urge us to continue to live godly lives even in the midst of the hostility of the world around us. And this is all, I would say, friends, this is all, um, just in closing, the, the application on this too is, this is a lesson on the urgency of prayer. The thing that Paul, the things that Paul is giving thanks for are the very things, as I said before, that he prayed for in the Thessalonians, that they would, their, their work of faith and their labor of love and their hope, that all of that would grow. He had prayed for those things. He had cried out to God to help them. You, you talk about being in a helpless situation. Paul's been forced to flee. He is miles away. He can't 
recruit a rescue team to go in and, and pull all the Thessalonian Christians out. He can't start a protest to, to overturn all of this persecution. Paul's left with one thing he can do from a distance. Pray and pray and pray urgently that God would not just spare this church, but that somehow, even in the midst of their suffering, he would enlarge their faith so that they would fix their eyes on God even more than they were when they first became believers and that they would see how to love one another even better than they did at first and that they would endure in godly conduct even as they were being persecuted. We must pray. Afflictions and suffering expose our weakness in such clear ways and we must pray, but not not simply the, Lord, if it's your will, get me out of here, prayer. That's, that's okay for a starting point, but the rest of that needs to be, Lord, grow my faith in this. Help me to trust you more. Help me to look for ways to love others more. Help me to carry on in faithful, godly conduct. Some of you, brothers and sisters, are in the throes of difficult days, and the rest of us have either walked through difficult days in the not too distant past, or they're probably not all that far down the road ahead of you. And the God who 2,000 years ago equipped a community of baby Christians to endure persecution and to flourish in the midst of that and to believe God and to love others and to walk in godly conduct, that God has not changed. His gospel is still powerful good news. His character hasn't changed. Our God is king over the last days. That will become manifest to the world in the day of the Lord, but for now, we must know that, that our God will surely have his day, and he is Lord over this time. And we need to continue to look, as we look through passages like this, with a perspective that says eternity matters. That when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Your Savior and your Redeemer is near and is able to cause you to flourish amidst whatever you're walking through and grow your faith, your love for others, and your endurance. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the Thessalonians. Thank you for our brothers and sisters in the faith who came long before us and who have long since gone into glory in your presence. Thank you for their lives and the testimony about them and for teaching us that even those new to the faith recently having trusted in Jesus Christ, could experience tremendous suffering and find hope in you in the midst of that. Thank you for the lessons taught to us through this body of believers, for the apostles boasting of how they were, by your strength, enduring under pressure. And we pray, Lord, that you would, you would cause our lives to be that sort of model, that sort of help for others, 
that as others look to us walking through affliction, that they might see faith and dependence on you, that they might see a a desire to still love others and serve them. Lord, help us to, to grow in the knowledge of who you are and to deepen our trust in you. I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody listening, watching online here today that does not know Jesus Christ as Savior, has never bowed the knee to him, I pray that today would be the day when they would see that this is not about religious do-goodism, just trying to buck up and handle it and somehow in our own strength to endure. This is about a Savior who came and paid the full price for our sin and his suffering on the cross and who has risen now to empower us and equip us to live by his grace, his strength, his presence in us in order that even in the worst of afflictions, we can still live godly and peaceful lives that model to others your goodness. Lord, thank you for the frequent lessons about suffering. As we gather here this morning, we enjoy freedom. We enjoy relative peace. For that, we're thankful. But we pray that you would be both ministering to those who are hurting and going through suffering right now, but also preparing your people. Lord, that if there are days ahead when affliction would continue, when persecution would grow strong, that we might be ones who would find a life of flourishing faith, an abundant love, and endurance that is empowered by you. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.